the National Archives podcast series, Britain and the Challenge of Fascism, Saving Europe at a Cost, presented by Professor David Stevenson of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Well, I'm talking about um, the period both mainly before the outbreak of the Second World War, and um, I've been asked to talk both about Italy and Germany, though the two cases are rather different, and the theme is the cost, the assessment of the cost of fighting that British governments and the public made during the 1930s, and how, for many years, that cost was thought to be prohibitive. But nonetheless, in the end, in 1939, the British government, with massive public support, uh, accepted that war was necessary. Um, But although the cost was high, the alternative of not going to war entailed potentially even higher costs. So I want to focus really on the calculations during the 1930s and how they changed. But I will say something at the end about how far those calculations actually panned out correctly and accurately after 1939. So I've been asked to talk both about Italy and Germany. And I'll start off by looking at Britain and fascist Italy. As you know, Benito Mussolini became Italian Prime Minister uh, after the so-called March on Rome in October of 1922. Rather, Miss Noma um, saw Mussolini's black shirts marched on Rome in a rather bedraggled way. Mussolini himself, of course, travelled by train. Um, but he arrived up in Rome and um, was able to apply sufficient intimidation to the Italian government to become Prime Minister. And step by step, between 1922 and 1925, he was able to establish a single-party dictatorship. Now, that's not a major concern from Britain's perspective during the 1920s. And in many ways, during the 1920s, Italy behaves in a way which supports the status quo established in Europe after the end of the First World War. Um, Just to give one example, uh, these are the so-called Locarno treaties in 1925, after the big crisis in the mid-1920s when France occupies the rural coal field to put the pressure on Germany to pay reparations. There's a compromise at the end of that in 1925, and what it entails is that France and Germany undertake not to fight each other again, not to use force, and that's guaranteed by both Britain and by Italy. So in 1925, you can still see fascist Italy cooperating in a way as a kind of policeman with Britain to keep order in post-World War Europe, which was a pretty disturbed place. Now, what we know, of course, now about Mussolini um, is that he was a much more sinister figure than he appeared at the time, particularly to British observers. We know that many British politicians at the time, including Winston Churchill, saw a lot to admire in Mussolini. What's become clear in more recent years is that Mussolini was more like Hitler in his foreign policy terms than used to be appreciated. And in particular, from the early 1920s, he had a well-established agenda directed against both Britain and France, that what he wanted to establish was, if you like, a new Roman Empire, Italian dominance of both shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and to break out what he saw to break out of a kind of prison in the Mediterranean, um, with Britain controlling both ends of that sea, Gibraltar in the west, Suez Canal in the east. Britain's power in the Mediterranean needed to be broken if Italy was to become and acquire the kind of great power status that Mussolini felt was necessary. But during the 1920s, he knew that that program was not something which he had any realistic chance of achieving. This changes after Hitler becomes German Chancellor 
1933. After 1933, Germany has once again, very quickly in fact, becomes a factor in power politics. What begins to emerge or re-emerge is a balance of power between Germany as the challenger on the one hand Britain and France as the cautious status quo powers on the other. And this, of course, creates opportunities for Italy under Mussolini as a country that could balance opportunistically between those two. Now, that doesn't mean that as soon as Hitler comes to power, um, Mussolini throws in his lot with Germany. And in fact, there is a rather pivotal period between 1933 and 1936 during which Italy was torn. Um, on the one hand, Mussolini, of course, admires Hitler, and Hitler admired him. Um, Mussolini was flattered by the fact that Hitler in many ways borrowed, um, copied what Mussolini had achieved in Italy. Um, but Mussolini was also afraid of Hitler. Because Hitler, if Germany got too strong, this might become a danger to Italy itself, which had overrun, at the end of the First World War, and taken territory in the area called the South Tyrol, up in the Alps, which contains a quarter of a million German speakers, nor did Mussolini want Germany to absorb Austria. Remember, I showed the map at the beginning of Europe in 1939, by which stage Austria had disappeared because it was absorbed into Germany. Um, but down to 1938, um, Austria was a buffer state between Germany in the north and Italy in the south. But the first page of Mein Kampf, Hitler's memoir of 1924, talks about his desire to see Germany and Austria reunited. Now that, to begin with, is a threatening thing from Mussolini's perspective, and he's willing to cooperate with Britain and France to prevent it. So what I've said here is that rise of Hitler liberates Mussolini, but Mussolini was not at first anti-Western. What he hoped to achieve was to expand, in Africa in particular, with British and French support, because the British and French would need him to protect Austria and to contain Germany. Now, this is the situation then when the big crisis takes place between Britain and France on the one hand and Italy on the other. This is the Abyssinian crisis of 1935 to 1936, and I need to look at that in more detail as a kind of test case in the operation of appeasement between the Western powers on the one hand and Italy on the other. Now, the outline of this, of course, is well known. Um, but for many years, Mussolini had had territorial claims against Ethiopia, uh, or Abyssinia as it's usually known in the 1930s. Abyssinia had humiliatingly defeated an Italian invasion back at the Battle of Adoa in 1896. This had never been forgotten. Um, certainly, from 1934 onwards, we know that Mussolini intended to use force to conquer Abyssinia, and a military confrontation develops between the two countries. Um, the culmination of this is that Italian troops invade Abyssinia. Um, it's a pretty blatant act of aggression. They invade it in October 1935. They conquer the entire country by the summer of 1936, using, among other things, poison gas. It's an act of fairly um, unequivocal act of aggression, which, of course, the League of Nations have been designed to set up, have been set up to prevent that kind of aggression and law of the jungle. So how is British public opinion and the government going to react? Well, British public opinion in 1935-36 is not overwhelmingly in favour of appeasement, conciliation, and doing nothing. The problem for the British government is actually the British public opinion is the other way around. It's in favour of firmness. 
And we have a remarkable piece of evidence for this, which is something called the peace ballot. The, we don't have opinion polls in Britain until 1937, but the peace ballot was a questionnaire that was delivered to every household in the UK by a body called the League of Nations Union, which, as its title suggests, is the main pro-League of Nations pressure group. It's one of the most influential lobbying bodies on foreign policy in Britain in the interwar years. It has massive support. The result of the peace ballot is that over 11 million adults indicate their views on the peace ballot about issues of war and peace. That's nearly 40% of the population. So it's not, if you like, a representative sample, but it's pretty impressive. And the results of the peace ballot are that over 80% support economic sanctions against an aggressor country, and 59% support military sanctions against an aggressor country. But what aggressor country do they have in mind? The peace ballot is distributed and signed and filled in in the summer of 1935, when the build-up to war between Italy and Abyssinia is very clearly taking place, and it looks as if hostilities are likely to be imminent. So in other words, when the British households fill in the peace ballot, the aggressor they have in mind is not Germany, it's Italy. The British government was very impressed by the peace ballot, um, and of course another reason why the British government has to take it into account is that it's approaching a crucial general election, which takes place uh, in November of 1935. And the slogan on which the British government goes to the polls is all sanctions short of war. In other words, it will support the League of Nations in imposing economic sanctions against Italy, but it will try to stop short of using armed force. So what the British do in response to the crisis down in Africa is to send warships into the Mediterranean, and the Foreign Secretary, Sir Samuel Hoare, goes to the League of Nations at Geneva and makes a ringing speech in favour of collective security, punishing aggression. British lead an international movement supported by many other countries to impose economic sanctions against Mussolini's Italy in retaliation for its use of force against Abyssinia. That's the impact of public opinion on the British government. But of course, the British government's private view was rather different from the public face of the policy. The private view of British officials, um, if you look at the Royal Navy, for example, or the Foreign Office, was that they did not want a war with Italy or to risk one. The advice of the Admiralty, um, Lord Chatfield is the key person, the first senior chief naval advisor to the government. Chatfield said, of course we can defeat the Italians if there's a war in the Mediterranean. The Royal Navy can do that. But the cost will be high. And remember that this is a lecture about the cost. The calculation was that the British armed forces had been so run down by cost cutting in the 1920s but the British ships in the Mediterranean had enough ammunition for about 30 minutes of anti-aircraft fire. After that, they would be very vulnerable to Italian air attack. And the British estimate was that the Italian air force was, was formidable, equipped with torpedoes and so on, and bombs, and could threaten Britain's warships. Now, if a British warship was sunk, a battleship in the 1930s would take between two and a half and three years to replace couldn't make good that damage quickly. That, in turn, would leave you very vulnerable, of course. Even if you defeated Italy, it would leave you vulnerable in other parts of the world, against Germany and against Japan. I'll come back to that point in a moment.
So, in other words, the point is that a war could be won, but the price would be high. The price would be high potentially in military and naval terms. It would also be very high in diplomatic terms, because by going to war against Italy, you would prevent any chance of a united front between Italy, Britain, and France against Germany, which is really what the Foreign Office wanted to achieve. Now, the consequence of all of this is that on the one hand, the British put on a show of firmness against Italy. On the other hand, there is backdoor secret diplomacy to try and buy Mussolini off. And the problem with this, of course, is that it doesn't remain secret. A notorious incident which takes place early in 1936 is called the Hall-Laval Plan. Sir Samuel Hall, H-O-A-R-E, was the British Foreign Secretary. His counterpart, um, Laval, Pierre Laval, L-A-V-A-L, was the French Foreign Minister, later, of course, becomes Prime Minister in Vichy, France, in the, in the 1940s. Uh, but what these two were putting together um, was a plan which would give the most fertile parts of Ethiopia Abyssinia to Mussolini and leave just the core of the country under the control of the Emperor Haile Selassie. This is leaked to the Paris press. There's a tremendous hullabaloo. So Samuel Hall has to resign. So once again, you see the disconnect between British government perceptions of the situation and British public opinion. Following through, <coughs> even after this Hall of Al Pact episode, the crucial question in the final stages is whether to impose oil sanctions. The British government could have crippled the Italian war effort by imposing oil sanctions. It never does. Or it agrees, by the time it agrees to do it, the war is virtually over. So the upshot of all of this is that the British, if you like, get the worst of both worlds. They fail to uphold the League of Nations. Italy conquers Abyssinia, leaves the League of Nations, so collect the principle of collective security is weakened. On the other hand, Mussolini is driven towards Germany and in fact becomes in many ways a permanent enemy and antagonist to British strategic interests because it's easier to alienate Mussolini than it is to bring him back into the pro-allied fold. Two reasons. Mussolini becomes very dependent on Germany for economic aid in the crisis and Mussolini, in practice, therefore, abandons the Locarno Agreement, which I mentioned earlier on. The test case for this agreement comes in March 1936, Saturday, 7th of March, when Hitler sends his troops into the Rhineland. As usual, he picks a weekend when the British and French statesmen are away in their country cottages, so the reaction is slow. But the German troops are sent in to the Rhineland, and Mussolini accepts it doesn't join in any kind of united front to prevent that. The second thing is that Mussolini abandons in practice his commitment to Austria, makes a so-called gentleman's agreement, which is a very strange name for it, but there is a gentleman's agreement in 1936 between Mussolini and Hitler, which in effect means that Italy will not defend Austria in the future. When Hitler did invade Austria in March 1938, Mussolini takes no action to protect the country. Hitler is tremendously relieved by that. He rings up Mussolini, sends a message to him, tell the Duce, I will never forget this, never, never. So from 1938 onwards, then, 36, sorry, onwards, Mussolini is more and more driven into Germany's camp. Another thing which I've mentioned here is the Spanish Civil War. It breaks out very soon 
after the end of the Abyssinian crisis. And once again, that Spanish Civil War, of course, means that Italy and Germany are on the one hand, on the one side, fighting in support of Franco and the nationalists, Britain and France are trying to maintain some kind of non-intervention. I said at the bottom, implications of Italy as an enemy. The implications are as follows. By the late 1930s, when Britain is increasingly facing the danger of war with Germany, the advice given to the government by the Joint Chiefs of Staff sorry, the Chiefs of Staff, the um, leading military advisors to the British government, is that a war with Germany is likely to mean also a war against Japan in the East and Italy in the Mediterranean. In other words, Britain will be facing not one threat, but three. This is the advice, for example, given at the Munich crisis in September of 1938. And that's a real issue, because that means that the whole of Britain's imperial possessions are very vulnerable. The British know that their possessions in East Asia are under threat from Japan, have been since at least 1931-33, the so-called Manchurian crisis. And the British plans for protecting Australia and Singapore and so on and Hong Kong against Japan entail moving the Royal Navy out to the east, which will take at least a month. It will take longer if the discontented and antagonised Italy is in the way. So in other words, the threat if Britain gets involved in a war with Europe against Germany, is that it will face three enemies, not just one, and Italy in the middle, handicapping Britain, tying its hand behind its back if it faces a challenge from Japan in Asia. I've talked um, at some length about Italy, but that's led into the next theme, which is Germany, British opinion and Nazi Germany. Now, I've indicated that, as regards Italy, British public opinion, in fact, is not in favour of appeasement. The problem for the British government is that the British public is in favour of firmness. Um, with Nazi Germany, it's not like that. There's no doubt that in the early 1930s, British public opinion with regard to the possibility of war with Germany is highly pacifist and isolationist. In fact, more so than at any other time between the wars, the classic example of this, which I've already mentioned, is March 1936, the Rhineland Crisis. Now, historians in retrospect have seen that as a key moment. If there was a chance of stopping Hitler without a major war, that was perhaps the best opportunity to take. Um, the French government, in particular in March 1936, makes an approach to the British, asks for British support in a phased programme of sanctions against Germany first economic, but then military. Now, I don't know how sincere the French were in that proposal. We can maybe discuss that. But the fact of the matter is the French did put that proposal to the British government, and the British government did not accept it, rejected it. The British government went instead in favour of negotiation. And negotiation that Hitler meant, of course, in 1936, basically accepting what he'd done and doing nothing about it. Now, as far as British public opinion is concerned in the Rhineland crisis, um, there are no voices raised in Britain, really, in favour of going to war or using force in the Rhineland crisis. On the contrary, the Foreign Office is deluged with letters calling in favour of conciliation, compromise, negotiation, which is the line, then, that the Foreign Office and the British government took decided to take, headed by Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister at the time. Now, did the British government have a choice? One of the key questions about appeasement, I guess, 
is was the British government so boxed in, in my public opinion, that it had no choice but to appease? I think the picture varies as compared with the early 1930s and the late 1930s. There's considerable evolution during the decade, and you, you need to understand this. If we look at the period from 1933 to 1937, then it's fair to say as far as we can tell, the British public opinion was overwhelmingly against risking war with Germany in favour of appeasement. To say we don't have opinion polls until 1937, um, but we have other pieces of evidence that we can take into account, such as the newspaper press, of course, from the Times downwards, which was pretty much in favour of appeasement, um, and other things. If one looks, for example, at the left, the British Labour Party at its conference in Hastings in 1933, passes a resolution in favour of a general strike should another war be threatened. British Labour Party votes against the defence estimates in the House of Commons until 1937. The British Labour Party then is not in favour of rearmament until quite late in the decade, until two years before war breaks out. The Peace Pledge Union is an example of new pacifist pressure groups that multiply in the 1930s. The Peace Pledge Union is one of the biggest Headed by the, uh, founded by the Reverend Dick Shepherd, whose church was St. Martin's in the Fields in London. People who sign the peace pledge commit themselves in no circumstances to, to bear arms in the future war. Um, 300,000 approximately have signed the peace pledge by 1939. Another example, and um, one which impressed Hitler, was the so-called Oxford Union debate. As you probably know, the Oxford Union is the debating society for the students of Oxford University. It's recently been notorious, of course, for allowing the BMP a platform, I think, this year. Uh, but in 1933, the Oxford Union debates a motion that this House will in no circumstances fight for king and country. And the motion is passed. It's commented on widely in the British press and noted by Hitler himself as an example that the British upper classes are going soft. So there's lots, if you like, of anecdotal evidence that you could put together for suggesting that British public opinion is extremely pacifist and opposed, when I say isolationist, it's opposed to continental commitments and alliances in the early 30s. Why so? The obvious answer, of course, is the experience of World War I, which absolutely dominates British life in the 1930s, but in a way which is hard to recapture now. It's only one they have seen in the newspaper press, of course, that there's one British surviving veteran left now, Harry Patch, who fought in Ashendale and is now 109. Our kind of visible link with the First World War has been completely extinguished. But in the 1930s, of course, the people in the country is full of veterans, people who have emerged as physical and mental wrecks from the war experience. And what seems to happen is that British public opinion goes much more anti-war in the 30s than it has been in the 20s. This is an interesting process which needs to be more investigated, really. Um, there's a marvellous book by a historian called Adrian Gregory who looks at Armistice Day. And remember that Armistice Day, in the interwar period, is normally on the weekday. It's not on... Remember, it's Sunday. It's less important. And at 11 a.m., on a weekday frequently, the whole country comes to a halt, Lancashire Cotton Mill. Stock Exchange. People just fall silent. Trains even stop on the tracks in North London um, in the 1930s when the 11 a.m. Um, armistice commemoration takes place. During the 1920s, speeches and sermons at Armistice Day say that the First World War had been a terrible tragedy, a terrible sacrifice, but it had not been a waste. It hadn't been futile. 
By the 1930s, there's a new and much more urgent <coughs> and angry tone, disillusioned tone in many of these speeches. The basic theme is that this must never happen again. First World War had been a tremendous mistake, which had not actually made the world a safer place. So there's a difference in tone in the way in which the First World War had been, this was remembered by the early 30s. Now that's the context in which I think it's quite good grounds for saying that in the early and mid-30s, British government is facing really overwhelming difficulties in trying to rally public opinion against an appeasement policy, against a negotiated approach. Um, by the late 1930s, however, public opinion is much more divided. And of course, we do now have opinion poll evidence um, from the Gallup poll and so on. Um, by early 1938, by which time Neville Chamberlain is Prime Minister, uh, what the opinion polls show in the spring of 1938 is that 44% are in favour of Neville Chamberlain's foreign policy, but 33% against. There's already a substantial opposition, disquiet about the trend of government policy. At the time of the Munich crisis itself, when um, of course the Munich crisis was over the issue of whether to defend Czechoslovakia and the sedate the land against German threats, the opinion poll evidence again suggests that the majority is in favour of not fighting over Czechoslovakia, but a very substantial minority criticises that perspective. So public opinion by 1938 is much more divided, I think. There's more and more doubt about um, the policy of appeasing Germany and whether this is really the right track to be following. The point, of course, is that British government under Neville Chamberlain wasn't trying to influence public opinion in favour of firmness, it was actually influencing it in favour of appeasement. And the way this is done, they said all rather familiar, it's by spin doctors, if you like, um, quiet lunches with newspaper editors, and in particular pressure on the BBC to prevent critics of appeasement from getting the voice. Critics of appeasement both on the right, of course Winston Churchill is the famous example, um, but also writers on the left, J.B. Priestley, um, and other left-wingers. Of course, remember by 1938, the British Labour Party is beginning to change its policy. It's less pacifist. The Spanish Civil War is of major importance here in making the principle of patriotism and fighting against fascism more fashionable on the left. So the Labour Party is swinging by 1938, and some Conservatives, of course, Churchill, most notable among them, they're not the only one. So public opinion is more divided by the which means to explain why the British government is so wedded to the policy of appeasement, you need to move away from public opinion and look at the corridors of power in Whitehall. Other reasons for appeasement are in many ways more important. <coughs> now, the first one I've already referred to, strategical overextension. British Empire is larger in the late 1930s than almost at any other time in its history. Um, but what British governments fear, as I mentioned a moment ago, is that if they go to war, they will have to defend not just in Europe, but also in the Middle East and in East Asia. That war will not just be a war against Germany, but also against Italy and Japan, the so-called triple threat. And on the other hand, against this, Britain's only likely ally is France. And the British chiefs of staff warn that even with French support, such a war one that Britain would lose. Remember that during the 1920s, Britain hadn't really had any very credible threats. Suddenly, in the early 30s, three very plausible threats shape up. 
much more quickly than Britain can rearm against them. I mentioned the 30 minutes of continuous uh, of anti-aircraft ammunition. That's not untypical. British armed forces are in many ways very run down by the mid-30s, and rearmament only begins, and seriously, after 1936. Now, where this is particularly relevant, of course, is fear of the bomber. And there's a lot of evidence that British public opinion and the government are not just worried about the memory of the First World War, but also the fear of something new, or at least greatly uh, expanded. Of course, there had been a blitz against London in 1917 1918, which is often forgotten. First of all, by Zeppelins and then by German Gotha bombers, and several hundred people have been killed. Um, but what's feared the next time round, of course, is it will be far, far worse. Um, British government estimates, secret estimates in the late 30s, um, considered that in the event of a war breaking out, the Germans would launch every bomber they'd got against Britain um, and thus inflict as many as 150,000 casualties in the first week. Churchill describes London as the greatest target in the world, tied up like a fat cow to attract the beasts of prey. Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, speaking to the cabinet um, in the middle of the Munich crisis after returning from one of his meetings with Hitler, says that morning he'd flown up over London, up the, over the river, up the river over London. He'd imagined a German bomber flying the same course. He had asked what degree of protection we could afford for the thousands of homes that seemed stretched out beneath him. The answer, of course, is none. And he had felt that we were in no position to justify waging a war today to prevent a war hereafter. So the fear of the bomb. What we now know, of course, is that this fear was exaggerated and it's an intelligence failure. This is interesting. British intelligence services counted the number of German bombers reasonably accurately. What they overestimated was the payload, the weight of bombs that they could carry. Most of the German bombers were quite small. They were twin-engine bombers, not like the Lancasters of Britain developed in World War II. They were not, in fact, capable of devastating London to the extent that was supposed. Now, the third point is economic vulnerability. Extremely important. Again, looking at the cost war. Cost is not just human, it's also financial. I mentioned earlier on that Britain rearmed late, and it's overtaken by Germany in the 30s. It's estimated that between 1933 and 1939, Germany spends about one and a half times as much on defence as Britain and France together. So Germany gains a great advantage in the early and mid-30s. By the late 30s, both Britain and France are rearming, but as soon as they start to rearm, Britain runs into very serious balance of payments problems. Um, it hasn't got the capacity to earn dollars and other foreign currencies that it needs to pay for raw materials and vital imports it is going to rearm. And this is of a major issue, great concern to Neville Chamberlain, who remember was Chancellor of the Exchequer. He's a kind of Gordon Brown figure, in fact. He's Chancellor of the Exchequer very successfully for several years before he takes over as Prime Minister in 1937. Um, so his background is in economics. He's very concerned that the country will be bankrupted if it gets into a war. To put it slightly differently, Britain has rearmed so slowly, that it, so late, that it cannot win a short war. On the other hand, Britain cannot win a long war, so it seems, because it will be bankrupted. It had nearly been bankrupted in the First World War until America came in 1917. So if it can't win a long war or a short war, what kind of war can it fight? Well, we know the answer now, which is a long war in alliance with America. But remember, in the mid-30s, America is moving into isolationism. 
America passes the so-called Neutrality Acts between 1935 and 1937, which are meant to kind of make it almost impossible for America to enter another European war. They outlaw loans, for example, or weapons sales to countries that are at war. Chamberlain's well aware of that. Chamberlain, of course, is suspicious of the Americans anyway. As he puts it in 1937, it always seems best and safest to count on nothing from the Americans except words. That's Chamberlain in 1937. So economic vulnerability linked to, as you can see, the next point, lack of allies. Okay, they have the French. They cannot count on the US. Maybe they could count on the Soviet Union, but Neville Chamberlain, for various reasons, is extremely suspicious, of course, of the Soviet Union, and also doubts whether it's actually much military value, particularly because of the purges that Stalin carries out in the Red Army and, of course, removes much of its officer corps in 37-38. In fact, the advice of the British Army to the government is that Poland is a more valuable ally than the Soviet Union, as of 1939. So, putting all these things together, there seem to be massive arguments in favour of appeasement of a kind of rational kind. But, of course, appeasement is not just a rational calculation. It's also driven by the last point here, which is Neville Chamberlain's personal search for peace. He loathes war. He hadn't fought in the First World War, but he has a detestation of it. When Britain does finally go to war in 1939, he says that everything he's lived for and fought for in politics has crashed into ruin. When he searches for peace and flies, goes the extra mile, flies to Munich, meets Hitler in 1938 three times, he is not just playing for time. He thinks it is possible to achieve a permanent peace with Germany and is genuinely, as it seems, deluded and misunderstands the nature of what he's facing. Now, why is appeasement abandoned? If so much seems to point in appeasement's favour, if it's so dangerous and so potentially risky and costly to go to war, why does Britain nonetheless go to war? Now, the key change, of course, is in March 1939, uh, at the end of that month, when Britain and France give a guarantee to Poland that they will come to its assistance against German attack. And the key event that leads to that guarantee is Hitler tearing up the Munich Agreement on um, the 15th of March 1939, when German troops invade Prague. Looking at why British policy changes, um, there are a number of things which come into play. British rearmament. By 1939, British rearmament is coming on stream in a big way. Um, by 1939, Britain is spending nearly a quarter of its gross national product on defence, which is comparable to the German figure and is phenomenally high for peacetime. And that's delivering goods. By September 1939, Britain and France are actually producing more tanks and aircraft per month than is Germany. Also, the British are developing some answer to the bomber threat. Remember, in 1938, there'd be very little answer to this. But in 1935, the British had developed radar. Uh, in the year before the outbreak of war, a chain of radar bases are established around the southern and eastern coast on the approaches to London. A new stream of fast single-wing fighters are coming onto production and to schedule. Um, but, uh, but above all, the Hurricane. The Spitfire is the one that everybody thinks of, but the Hurricane is actually earlier and more important and more numerous. Now, what this means is the potential is now coming into place to defend London um, against German attack. And finally, linked to this, is very important, is a hardening of public opinion in favour of risking and, if necessary, fighting the war. In spite of all the risks entailed, with that. 
Public opinion poll in August 1939 suggests a six to one majority in favour of going to war and honouring the Polish guarantee of Germany attacks. Public opinion swings round massively and actually swings faster and farther, further than the government itself did. Having said which, on the other side of it, Britain's economic vulnerability is actually greater in 1939 than 1938. Its foreign exchanges have run down further. The Treasury, which of course is the key government department here, the Treasury advises in July 1939 that the prospects of a long war are becoming exceedingly grim. In other words, if there is another long war like the First World War, Britain will very quickly be bankrupt. Economic vulnerability increased. And if you look at the continent, don't of course just look at the balance between Britain and Germany, but look at the balance between France and Germany. Because the British assumption was that the French army would actually do most of the fighting. In 1938, the French army had still been considerably larger than the German one. By 1939, September 39, the Germans had overtaken the French, and of course they've eliminated Czechoslovakia as a valuable ally to France in Eastern Europe. So it's not actually overwhelmingly clear that Britain is better placed fighting in 1939 than it had been in 1938, particularly if you look, as you should, at Britain and France together, not just at Britain alone. And yet what's off? Coming back to intelligence, um, the intelligence services had overestimated the danger in Germany in 1938, and the politicians had not wanted to fight. In 1939, the intelligence services, special intelligence services, it was called SIS, origin of the present MI6, was actually more optimistic. They predicted amazingly that Germany would collapse economically, not Britain, and that Hitler might be overthrown. So once the politicians have increasingly reconciled themselves to the view that war has to, be, has to come, the intelligence appraisal changes. It's not quite clear why, but it's, it's interesting. <coughs> Final point, war by miscalculation. Of course, when I say appeasement was abandoned, this is only uh, half true. Still in 1939, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, hopes that war can be avoided, but the policy is now to try to deter war through the Polish guarantee and by backing it up with rearmament. The problem, of course, is that the deterrent fails to deter. Hitler is not impressed, particularly once he has the Nazi-Soviet pact, which is the key thing in August 1939. He feels that he can go to war against Poland, and even if Britain and France come in, it won't actually matter very much. Now, finally, the consequences. How do these calculations before 1939, how accurate do they prove as a prediction of what the Second World War was actually going to be like? The bombing threat was overestimated. The fears in the mid-1930s of 150,000 casualties in the first week turned out to be gross exaggerations of what the bombing threat would represent to Britain. There wasn't that many casualties in the entire war. Terrible that the blitz was, and I don't want to try to minimise it. But the economic threat was not exaggerated at all. Britain has in many ways a successful industrial economy in the Second World War, remarkably successful in producing armaments. Even many, some of the armaments, of course, are not very good, but the others, others which are, particularly many remarkable aircraft produced, a very good field gun and so on. So a good deal of industrial success, but financial disaster. By the end of 1940, Britain is in fact bankrupt. 
once again, as it had nearly been at the beginning of 1917, and it's only able to keep going because of the so-called lend-lease aid from an America which is still neutral from March 1941. The American lend-lease aid temporarily lifts the balance of payments constraint which had hobbled Britain in the 1920s and 1930s. The flow of dollars into the country which makes is the, is the basis for the industrial success of the rather temporary kind while the war is going on. I said at the bottom that Britain did not save Europe, which the title of this um, conference suggests. That, of course, is a gross exaggeration. Um, Britain makes an important contribution, but the war was won by the Soviet Union. Churchill knew that. Churchill says, and quite rightly, that it's the Red Army that tore the guts out of the Wehrmacht, out of the German army. Um, and the US, and the US contribution, I don't want to understate. In fact, in recent years, historians have been making out that the Allied American bombing offensive in particular did a lot more damage to the Germans than used to be thought. And there was a kind of current of thought in the 60s and 70s which played down the importance of strategic bombing. But now the emphasis is going the other way. A great deal of stress on the quantity of resources the Germans have to put into air defense of their cities, which in turn as a knock-on effect, it cripples their army or helps to weaken it in fighting the Red Army in the East. So the war is won by the Soviet Union and the United States, that Britain, of course, makes an important contribution. If we come back to the beginning about public opinion, I stress the importance of public opinion, very much important for British politicians at the time. By 1939, British public opinion, as I said, had changed. It was slow, it needed to be persuaded that war was necessary, that there really was no alternative. By August, September 1939, that job of persuasion has largely been completed. And British public opinion is remarkably solid, I think, during the six years of the Second World War. It's solid during the Blitz. Um, it's solid during the British disasters when Japan comes into the war in 1942. When the British Empire in the East, much of it is overrun. The British army is defeated at Tobruk in the Middle East, um, problems of the Battle of the Atlantic. Even more remarkable, in a way, British public opinion takes the casualties after 1944, which, of course, is what Churchill was really afraid of. Um, down to 1944, British casualties are actually remarkably low. About half the British casualties in the war come after June 44, after the D-Day landings. And Churchill and his advisers knew that was going to be the dangerous time. Could British public opinion withstand a, a replay of the song and of Ashendale? Well, in many ways, that's what it was. Don't underestimate this. During the Battle of Normandy, in June, July 1944, after the D-Day landing, British casualties per day were higher than they were during the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. It's often forgotten. British public opinion takes all that, but it turns against the so-called guilty men. Between 1940, Dunkirk, and the Beveridge Report being published in 1942, there seems to be a massive change around the Guilty Men, of course, is the title of a famous pamphlet of diatribe against the 1940s politicians, which was a, the 1930s politicians, which was a bestseller published by an anonymous author called Cato, in fact a collective of young left-wing journalists, including Michael Foote, the later Labour Party leader. Guilty Men is a bestseller, sells 600,000 copies, condemns the men who had not prepared Britain um, and its armed forces and exposed it to disaster at Dunkirk. So, finally, if we take public opinion, public opinion, if you like, stood and accepted the need for war in 1939 and 
continued, if you like, to abide by that acceptance for the next six years. But it does deliver a punishment of the uh, men who are thought to be responsible for it, and the party that's thought to be responsible, the Conservatives, as we see in the election of 1945. This event was recorded live on the 13th of March 2008 at London South Bank University. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>